This stuff is, is really interesting, if you've ever seen. So this is called Stinky Bob, is its common name. It's actually in the geranium family, um, and Herb Robert is the uh, more formal common name. Um, but it's associated with Robin Goodfellow, with Puck, mm. like the Fae character, mm. um, Herb Robert. Um, and it's called Stinky Bob because it has a distinctive smell to it. It's an invasive, so you can take as much of this stuff as you want. But if you smell it, it's really strong smelling, but <clears throat> it's completely edible and you can use it like cilantro. Oh. People don't like it because they're, they're like making a whole salad out of it and eating it. And they're like, oh, this is disgusting. Mm. But if you just use as much as you would put like cilantro on a taco, mm -hmm. if you like cilantro, then it's got a really nice flavor to it. Interesting. That might be a good one, actually, because there's a I, lot of folklore with that I was going to say. <laughs> so, we let our uh, little mini hike decide what our topic was. Yeah. Stinky Bob. Stinky Bob. Herb Robert. All right, cue that theme music. Welcome to Randomly Generated Rabbit Holes, a side series by Anomalous Waves. I'm John, your host and sound guy, and today I'm joined by strange pal Jeremy Puma. Jeremy is a forager, a fermenter, an animist, and part of Liminal Earth, a map of the strange, wonderful, unusual, and unexpected. As you heard in the beginning of the episode, Jeremy and I discovered our topic while foraging for wild edible plants. During our walk, the once sea of green became individual shades, shades that could be identified and sometimes eaten. At the peak of our mini adventure, we came across Herb Robert, AKA Stinky Bob. Join Jeremy and I down a rabbit hole of plant talk, folklore, of course I strangeness, and Amalia's favorite topic, stinky stuff. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Anomalous Waves. So Jeremy, can you tell us a little bit just about Herb Robert? Yeah, so Herb Robert is, it's considered an invasive species in most parts of uh, the Western world of the United States. Um, it originates, it's a plant that originates kind of in Europe. Um, and it was a, typically it was used as like, as a garden plant, like a pretty little geranium. Got these pretty little pink flowers, um, you know, nice color. It's green in the spring and then gradually it turns red or darker or scarlet uh, as it ages. Um, and then it's got these little crane bill things on it. These little seed pods that look like, uh, cranes heads, uh, which is kind of a mark of flower of plants in the geranium family. And it's a really cool plant. It's very small. It's unobtrusive, but it escaped from gardens 
and it came, uh, it, it just started spreading everywhere. So it's considered, you know, kind of a pest plant. And it's got a lot of names. Its scientific name is Geranium robertianum. Um, I think I'm saying that right. It's one of those words that I've like read, but don't usually say out loud. <laughs> exactly. <so. laughs> yeah. And I, it's it's got it's got another name. It's called Stinky Bob, um, and people call it Stinky Bob because it has a distinct smell. And you can say I, I have some here, and you can kind of smell. And people describe the smell in all kinds of different ways. Um, they say people say like burnt rubber or plastic. You know, you've seen these these things online where you're like you're looking at a word and you hear the word, and the word that you're hearing is the one that you're seeing, but then the sound is ambiguous. So they show up, a, they flash up a different word, and they play the exact same sound, but now it says that the you know because it's like kind of the power of suggestion. Mm. And I kind of feel like that's what's going on with Stinky Bob in many ways. Mm. Um, I don't think that it is any worse smelling. In fact, I think it smells very similar to cilantro. Yeah. I'm a foraging guy. I forage wild plants. And uh, this is one of my favorite plants to use when I'm foraging because a lot of people think, oh, like you go not go out foraging, you're going to get a bunch of plants and you're going to make a salad or something uh, if you're foraging for wild plants or like nettle soup or something like that. The thing I try to... Uh, impress upon people when I'm talking about using wild plants for cuisine is to consider plants as ingredients. So instead of I'm going to eat a big handful of this thing that smells like, would you eat a big handful of cilantro? <laughs> Chances are no. no. Um, and so you wouldn't do that with this stinky bob either. I think it probably wouldn't taste very good if you just ate a big handful. But if you use a little bit as a seasoning, that's where it actually tastes really good and it tastes like cilantro. And so I actually will use it in place of cilantro a number of times. There's enough of it. I mean, it grows <laughs> everywhere. So um, it's got these fun little seed heads, the the crane seed heads, and they shoot their seeds. I was watching a video about that. And that, that's a way to like, what, what's the word? Propagate? Propagate, yeah. Yeah, so they propagate by shooting their seeds. They also can propagate through uh, underground runners and... Um, but yeah, shooting off the, <laughs> shooting the seeds. <laughs> and don't they kind of like latch on? Like yeah. there's like little threads or something. There are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found that really yeah. fast. So it's this really cool plant. It's totally a survivor. And I, I, I don't know. I just, I love it. It's a cool, it's, I have some here. It's, um, it's very pretty. And I have, I know people who do, you know, restoration work and I've done, um, site designs for, uh, restoration where you have to make plant lists and then you have to identify all the invasive plants. And something about this plant, if you talk to people who do restoration work or rewilding, they just despise it. It's one of the most hated plants that I've ever come across when I talk to people who are into plants. That's interesting. I've heard it be called persistent. Yes. Like persistent. it will not give up. <laughs> that is try to get true. rid of it and yeah. uh, it, it will come back. Yes. Yeah. But it is, and it, and it's abundant. Um, and, but it's, it's useful. It's edible. It's medicinal. It's astringent. It's, let's see, I've got a source book here to find the actual terms, uh, astringent and they helpful for a wide range of inflammatory conditions where the tissues need tightening, mm -hmm. uh, relieves pain and inflammation from bites, stings, cuts, and abrasions. Um, you can gargle the root or leaf tea for a sore throat. 
Uh, it can reduce intestinal inflammation and temper the dehydrating effects of diarrhea. So there you go. Whoa. Uh, the powdered root applied topically stops bleeding. Um, it, it's really, it's just this like medicinal. That's so interesting. Cool plant, um, you know, for that, those would be sort of its kind of more mainstream mainline uses. So I saw something about too, that they, they um, believed that it did something with the blood, like clean the blood. And I think because it was red. Yeah, exactly. It's this thing called the doctrine of signatures. Have you ever heard of? No. So it's, there's plants that look like things. Yes. And the plants that look like things often have um, properties that are going to uh, help whatever that thing is. So like liverwort is a plant. And this is an interesting fact. Anytime you see wort in a plant, W-O-R-T, um, that signifies it was officially used medicinally somewhere. Whoa. So liverwort is a medicinal plant that people use to for, for liver, for the liver. Um, walnuts are good for your brain because they look like brains. Um, <laughs> shepherd's purse is another plant. It has these little heart-like things and it's good for your heart. So that's the doctrine of signatures, you know. And do you find that that's... That's true, or that they they thought it was good. I for think that. there's something to it. Um, I think it's like there's that old saying that like history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> and I think I think Mark Twain said that. <laughs> um, but I think that the the doctrine of signatures is like that. Like there's there's something there, some pattern that started off, you know, the creation of plants or something like that. Um, and those patterns have sort of gone, you traveled down through time and now, you know, so maybe so. I mean, there's there's absolute evidence that like liverwort is good for your liver or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but how far you want to take it, I think that's, you know, up to the individual to decide. So that's fascinating. I was going to ask you like that exact thing and I didn't know there was an actual term for it. The doctrine of signatures. Very cool. Yeah. In fact, uh, there's this guy. Nicholas Culpepper. He's one of the most famous sort of uh, medieval uh, mm. time herbalists. Mm -hmm. And you can find his books like really cheap. And this one, there's a there's a big typo on the cover. It says Culperers, complete herbal. It should be Culpepper. <laughs> and it's got it spelled right at the bottom. I don't know. That's what happens when you order cheap books. But it's a good book still. <laughs> Uh, the herb Robert is held in great esteem by farmers who use it in diseases of their cattle. Uh, it's under the dominion of Venus. Herb Robert is commended not only against the stone. I don't know if that means kidney stones or mm, gallstones or what. Probably. But to stay blood where or howsoever flowing. It speedily heals all green wounds <laughs> and is effectual in old ulcers in the privy parts, which were more of an issue back then, I assume than they are now, or elsewhere. You may persuade yourself this is true and also conceive a good reason for it. Do but consider it is an herb of Venus for all it hath a man's name. So even though it's an herb of Venus, it has a man's, like a man's name, it's Robert, so. It's Robert, it's Robert. just Robert. Herb Robert. Uh, but this grows frequently everywhere by the waysides, upon ditch banks and waste grounds, wherever one goes. So even back then, you know, they found it growing like on the side of the road or. Speaking of the name, when I was looking up folklore, you know, connections, 
I found one article about uh, Puck. Yes. Um, and it said, did you know Herb Robert is thought to have gained its name from an ancient association with Robin Goodfellow, a house goblin from English folklore also known as Puck. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I started getting really into Robin Goodfellow. Yeah. Are you familiar with the Robin Goodfellow? Um, more or less, yeah. Uh, kind of a like a fae trickster, kind mm-hmm. of. And he's actually in Midsummer Night's Dream, the Shakespeare play. That's, yes. That's the same puck. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that word puck, it's also related to like puka, mm-hmm. um, which in Welsh is P-W-C-A. <laughs> yeah, they said it was uh, pronounced the same, even though there there was many different mm-hmm. pukas. Um, I found one. It was uh, from Gillian Edwards, Hobgoblin and Sweet Puck. He says, parallel words exist in many ancient languages. Puka in Old English, puki in Old Norse, puke or puke. I'm not sure in Swedish. <laughs> uh, pug in Danish, pucks in Low German. Pukis, I'm pronouncing all these wrong, in Latvia and Lithuania, mostly with the original meaning of a demon, devil, or evil and malignant spirit. Because of, yeah, dun, dun, dun. Because of this similarity is uncertain whether the original puka sprang from the imaginative minds of the Scandinavians, the Germans, or the Irish. Hmm. So a lot of people with similar beliefs, but a lot of it, Sounds very similar to, um, you know, brownies, house spirits. There were some connections there. I also found that um, Puck is a type of fairy known as a hobgoblin. Hob is short form for the name Robin or Robert. And Robin itself was a medieval nickname for the devil. Yes. Always connection to the great beast. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and like many things, Robin Goodfellow or Puck seem to go from like fairyish qualities to like hooves and horns and all yeah. that. Turns into very panish like things. Mm-hmm. Um, super interesting. But known for shape shifting abilities, which I really love. Um, one of the things in the you brought up the Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. Before that, uh, I found a blog post that said Reginald Scott wrote in 1584 that belief in Robin Goodfellow was not as strong as it had been a century earlier. Mm-hmm. So very old belief. But just a little while later, started being in lots of plays. Shakespeare, you know, in a mid a Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, had Puck, which just comes from Robin Goodfellow. And one of the quotes I liked was, uh, I am that merry wanderer of the night. I jest to Obernon and make him smile, which Obernon, I think, is the king of the fairies yeah, the in fairy the play. Uh, when I a fat and bean-fed horse beguile, neighing in likeness of a filly foal, and sometime lurk I in a gossip's bowl, in very likeness of a roasted crab, and when she drinks against her lips, I bob, and on her withered dewlap pour the ale, the wisest ant telling the saddest tale. There was lots of things about it likes gossip. Uh, sometime for three foot stool mistaketh me. Hmm. I really like that because it's not only shapeshifting into creatures or human form, but maybe even a stool. I'm assuming that's like the kind of stool you sit on. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because it says, then uh, slip I from her bum, down topples she, and Taylor cries and falls into a cough. And then the whole 
choir hold her hips and laugh, and waxen in their mirth, and knees and swear a merrier hour was never wasted there. So they're all cracking up because she fell off the stool that wasn't actually a stool, but the trickster Robin Goodfellow. Right. And that made me think of Liminal Earth and how y'all appreciate all weird things, including <laughs> like something strange like a pile of peeled oranges. Yeah, that's right. Can you tell us about the pile of peeled oranges for those that don't know? Yeah. Uh, so this is really uh, it's a really fun mystery. Um, there's there's a long story. Uh, I'll try and kind of give you the the two dollar version <laughs> um but the there's a place called the the black river riparian area and it's in a little kind of suburb of seattle called renton um but kind of on the border between renton and tequila uh and the whole area is very you know it's office parks and industrial and there's a big mall nearby and you, you know you wouldn't think of it as being something that has this sort of mystery behind it but this there used to be uh back in the day <laughs> a river called the black river uh and what happened was that the the in seattle they dug a ship canal in the 1900s and when they dug this ship canal they changed the level of the water in the lakes that are near seattle and the black river which was of course one of the primary gathering spots, uh, foraging and hunting and fishing spots for the indigenous populations. Um, the Black River completely dried up in like an afternoon. Uh, you can go to the Renton History Museum and they have accounts of people who are saying like, oh, all of a sudden all the fish were just flopping around, you wow. know, just completely decimated. So riparian is a, is a word for like riverbank, basically, for uh, riverbed rather. And this riparian uh, area has been kind of set aside as a preserve um, for wildlife and stuff, but it's really just, it's scrub. I mean, it's like almost 80% what we would consider invasive species, which I keep saying like what we would consider um, because I have real qualms with the concept of invasive species, but we, we can talk about that. Um, anyhow, so they've turned it into this sort of natural area with, you know, you, they have some nice little nature trails and some paved sidewalks and stuff. And it's really, it's pretty nice. Uh, but the entrance to it, or one of the entrances to it is near this office park. And over the past few years, at least, well, let's see, what is it? So probably, actually probably five years by now, people have been seeing and reporting enormous piles of peeled oranges just surreptitiously left in this place. Hundreds of them, hundreds of these oranges. Um, you can see if you go to our, our uh, to the Liminal TikTok account, uh, we have a bunch of videos uh, where we, we go and, and check them out. And the locals have been wondering about it. Nobody has the answer. Nobody knows who is leaving these oranges there. Just tremendous piles. Um, we've done a lot of research into the area. There are no like jelly companies or... Uh, orange peel outlets. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's a total mystery. And it's like one of the coolest mysteries because um, it's not the kind of thing that you would usually think of if you th think of something mysterious. But the more you think about it, the weirder it gets. Yeah. Like, wh what? What do you just need peels for? Like, right. maybe yeah. like 
essence, like the smell, like smell of perfume. Sure, or, yeah. And the oranges themselves are like the big juicy. Like it, it seems really strange they wouldn't have thought. Well, let me at least juice them or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if they're if they're not like like they couldn't just sell them at the store, they would yeah juice them or you would think. Yeah. So so it's a huge mystery to us, uh, and so. You know, in many ways, it's the kind of mystery that if we were to find a mundane reason that it was occurring, we'd be very disappointed. Of course. Uh, you know, so we like to keep going back and and hoping that we'll catch, you know, uh, Robin Goodfellow or somebody. I think you may have once uh, when you went and you found a, a Florida orange juice car. And I think, yes. that, I yeah, think we, that was one of the TikToks. I think, yeah, the only, the, the only time we've been there where there were no oranges, where the oranges are usually placed, there was an empty carton of orange juice. <laughs> and if that is not a sign of some kind of trickster or something, then I don't know what it, it is. <laughs> that at best is some sort of strange nod from from the other. Yeah. Saying, I, I know y'all looking for the oranges. This is all I got right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But the whole area is really cool and mysterious. There's um, like a stairway carved in out of mud into the riverbank that you go up and uh, weird structures in the woods, like wooden structures, oh. human, human made very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, a lot of it, I'm sure, is uh, people who are unhoused who are camping. Um, yes. And, you know, but but some of it's not. Some of it is like too, there's no real good ex- explanation for it. So... We went once, and uh, we have this thing called the Liminal Spirit Oracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you have a copy, but mm-hmm. it's a system where you can use just your surroundings um, to try to communicate with the uh, the liminal spirit, the ge- the spirit of the place, the genius loci or loci, or again, a word I've usually seen written. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what it means. And essentially, what we got was that you know this area. It was communicating to us that it was wounded. Uh, it was very, it was not pleased with its current state, um, which which seems to be kind of a theme a lot uh, in areas that we've investigated. Um, it's the land itself that is the entity that is trying to communicate with us. So your mileage may vary, but <laughs> it was an interesting <laughs> experience. Well, it also, it tracks with even just some poltergeist activity mm-hmm. where it's somebody going through a transition or someone very troubled or someone very angsty. Uh, it's almost like the land is uh, going through a transition that it doesn't want to and yeah. it's unhappy with its current state. And it's uh, there's got to be a better word than like acting out, but like, <laughs> you know, like it's expressing itself. Expressing itself. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so another thing I was thinking about is I love a lot of these plants that you forage um, wild greens-wise exist in in a liminal space because they're on the edges of woodlands. You know, if you go too deep into a conifer forest, you're not going to find all these wild greens everywhere to grow. Um, You need to find a place that's like on the edge of a park or at the edge of a forest or the edge of a field. Um, I studied permaculture. And one of the things that we learn is that there's more diversity on the edges of things. Liminal spaces are the more diverse spaces. Mm. And so if you want to find 
a bigger community of plants to experience. Um, if you stick to the edges and the borders, then you're going to be more likely to find a wider variety. Interesting. Um, and I think that relates to like liminal studies, as it were, too. You know, the map. Um, how many of them happen on like? How many experiences happen in like empty lots? Mm -hmm. That's a liminal space, or like abandoned houses, even like haunted houses. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of a liminal space between being completely occupied and not being occupied. Um, so there's definitely a, a, a component of liminality in learning wild plants in your area, I'd say. So we have this, there's this concept we're, we're kind of interested in looking at called liminal ecology, uh, that we call liminal ecology, uh, which says that your your average because most occult investigators, um, let's think of your average ghost hunter. You know, they go into a haunted house and they look for ghosts, but they ignore the house. <laughs> and what we think is that you can't investigate this stuff as though any of it exists in a vacuum. You have to take into consideration like the landscape the plants that are there, the, you know, the soil type, the, uh, my background is, you know, I have a, a, a background in permaculture, which is landscape design. And one of the first things that we do when we go in and, and try and figure out what we're going to do for the, the landscape design is a site assessment. And you look at like, it, it, ideally you would spend a whole year just doing the site assessment so that you could catch it in every season. Uh, realistically, that doesn't usually happen, but, um, you look at like, the soil type, the plants that are there, the bedrock, you look at, you know, prevailing winds, you look at the amount of annual rainfall, you look at like, what are the chances it'll flood in a thousand years, all of this information before you even start doing a design of some kind. And we like to take that approach when we go out and, and look at stuff. We don't do like a full on site assessment yet. Yet we're working on that, <laughs> but, um, the idea that, you know, if we want to go ghost hunting, we're not just going to go and look for the ghost to try and talk to the ghost. Um, we went to, for example, uh, the Walker Ames house, which is, it's called like the most haunted house in Washington. It's in Port Gamble, which is in the Kitsap area. Mm -hmm. And we were lucky enough to have a chance to go and do an investigation there. And what we found is that the plant life there was like so interesting. It was almost as interesting as the, the, the spooky stuff. Um, the, the, there's a, this tree called a witch elm that was there, um, which is just this sort of weird magical tree that you, you know, you walk inside of it, the branches. Um, there was this in the, in the basement where a lot of activity occurs, there was a plant called Kenilworth Ivy, which is often associated with spirit activity. Um, there's, there's just a lot of interesting ways to investigate this stuff beyond just like, let's go beat up a ghost. <laughs> it sounds like um, they're missing a lot of like strange, strangeness, mm -hmm. Be missing out on strangeness and like other strange patterns because they're focusing on one part of the phenomenon and not looking into these other things. Yeah. I think me and Amalia went there and I remember that elm tree. Yeah. That was just so like, cool. we sat, we sat under it, me, her and Lilyput sat under it for a while and we're like, well, we can't go in because there was 
already in the middle of a tour or something. Yeah. Uh, couldn't go in, but yeah, that that's fascinating. Yeah. Missing out on, on the weirdness because they're just looking for ghosts. Pretty much. Yeah. Interestingly, we, uh, I have a wide variety of like tools that we use when we investigate. And sometimes we'll just bring things at random just to see what happens. I have this like cheapo electric AccuPen that I got from Amazon for whatever reason. I thought it'd be kind of cool to experiment with. Um, and it's basically, you know, it's acupressure, acupuncture, but it's electric impulses. And it it has this setting, and I don't know how this works, but it works, where you it will detect the acupoint on you based on like the tone that it's emitting. And so, you know, that the higher the pitch, the closer you are to an acupoint. And, you know, it works if you look at the chart of acupoints and, you know, that to find one and it, it works. It actually does that. We were under that witch elm and I took it out and we started using it on the witch elm and found out that the leaf nodes on the plant made the same pitch as a acupoint on a human. And so we, you know, we tried it a few times. We tried it on a dead stick and didn't get anything. It was only on live plants. Yeah. And then we started trying it on other plants too, and it seems it worked every time. So. Whoa. Well, speaking of a bunch of weird things kind of all happening at once, I couldn't find the actual story, but I found a video um, from, it's called Spooky History. And it was talking about the puka. And uh, supposedly it's stated in the video that Shakespeare was inspired by the stories of Southeast Wales and their puka stories. And specifically a tale about a young servant girl named Bloodwin who asked a puka to help her with her chores in exchange for some milk and bread. Very casual exchange between a house spirit or a puka and a person. Uh, but one night, the girl ate the the food before the puka could get to it. So they were upset, of course, supposedly scratched and tore at her before disappearing. And then after that, it was all invisible things. So then it was like very poltergeist-like behavior, things knocking over, animals being disturbed, that kind of stuff. Supposedly also, a farmer tried to shoot it, uh, and then... They were attacked by stones, oh. which I love that because that not that it happened to them, but that, uh, you know, that's a very classic Bigfoot, you know, yeah. kind of trait. And mm. Kushtaka uh, from Alaska, Amelia yeah. talks about lots of stone throwing involved. So I thought that was weird. And then another farmer, supposedly a worker named Job, saw light in the forest, which he followed and was led deeper and deeper to the woods very willow wispy trickstery orb yeah. UFO thing going on. Um, and then there was like no longer a light, but he saw a small creature with sharp teeth smiling at him. This smiling thing's another weird thing that always happens in these stories. Yeah. And that's when he realized he was about to fall off a cliff. Oh, wow. Because that's another part of like the Welsh folklore is like they'll lead you out and then turn off the light or whatever. Whoa. Right before a cliff. The puka was just like mad. And supposedly, like, spit and grimace and then took off to go live in a cave because that's where you go live, right? Well, sure, yeah. <laughs> and uh, now, supposedly, that's known as, like, Shakespeare Cove because he allegedly visited there. 
Huh. I couldn't find the story. I was trying to find it. I wish they would have linked to something, some yeah. way to find the story because very fascinating. But yeah, I found a lot of like things like that. Huh. Uh, like a lot of crossover, of course, the high strangeness crossovers. Right, yeah. But I love when you find it in really old folklore. Yeah, and, definitely. And you're just like, oh, that's like all the things. That was like orbs, UFOs, poltergeists, like yeah. fairy, fae, you know. All smiling, mixed into one. Cre- creepy smiling things. Hobgoblin, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right? Uh, it's it's good. And also a lot of like, you know, I know you've heard pixie lead, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of that kind of thing going on with Robin Goodfellow. They even used to say, Robin Goodfellow has been with you tonight. And there's oh. a reference of that as early as it says 1531. Wow. Well, did we talk about... Um... Garrett and Jim Perry and I were pixie led once. Ooh, Did we talk about that please, before? Please or? tell me. Yeah. So we went to, there's a, a park in West Seattle called Fauntleroy Park, and it has like this sort of fairy village in it. Um, it's sort of this, this giant cathedral of cedar trees and, you know, nothing on the ground except cedar needles. And underneath each one of them, uh, fairy houses have been constructed. I will not theorize as to how they were constructed <laughs> uh, what's the fun in that it's exactly. like the orange lever yeah right? yeah leave exactly. it alone but it was really but it's really cool because like they um yeah it, it's whoever has been doing it most likely the fairies have just done this really cool job of like maintaining this site um so garrett and jim and i were went to go look at the the fairy village and i've been to this park many 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 times it's one of my foraging spots I know the park really, really well. And we had this kind of liminal experience. I, I, I know liminal gets overused a lot, but I think this one definitely qualifies where we were looking through Hagstone. So, so, you know, Hagstones, Hagstones are, you know, or Holy Stone or Adderstone, stone with a hole in it. You can mm-hmm. see the, the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have some tape to binoculars because it's one of our tools for investigation. <laughs> I so love that. We have the Hagstone binoculars and we were looking through it and we kept seeing this. We all had the same experience looking at this one tree stump where when we were looking through the stone, it was an old man. Like it was like an old man. It even kind of like seemed like it like moved a little bit or something. And then you take down the binoculars and it was very clearly a tree stump. So call that what you will. <laughs> Uh, we are pro pareidolia at, at Little Yeah, Blur. yeah, yeah. Uh, we think there's value in that. Um, but so we had this really fun experience and then it was time to go. Um, so I was like, okay, well, let's go. So we started walking out and we ended up somehow on a trail that took us like probably a half a mile from where we should have gone. We just came out and like, and and then as soon as we got out, it started pouring rain, just completely pouring rain. So we we very firmly believe at that point that we were we had been pixie led by I don't know an old, what kind of entity old puka but we saw something and something was like yeah I'm gonna, gonna gonna mix you guys up so I feel like you saw me yeah exactly I'm also very pro pareidolia I'm glad you said that because I feel like it's used as an excuse to like you know. I think Jim might have brought this up in his conversation with Garrett uh, to kind of like explain stuff away. Yeah. But I think of it as like your brain like snapping to a grid, you know, trying to make sense of something. Yeah. And trying to use, 
your biological senses the best it can to like see this thing that usually maybe can't be seen by our right. normal. And it's your brain just like trying its best to, you know, make sense of whatever's there, but something else is there. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. But I just think it's like, um, you know, you think of like the fae, uh, as present in the forest, but you can't see them mm-hmm. uh, until you do. And I kind of think this plant is the same way. Wow. Because once you, you know, you go out there and then you see it and then you're like, oh, it's everywhere. <laughs> That's what I was so excited about this idea that once we met out, you know, and we were both kind of like, oh, we should just pick a random plant and like use that as our topic. And I now know that I'll be walking around and be like, oh, there's Stinky Bob. Yes. There's Herb Robert. There was a lot of names too. I should should have wrote down like a list of the. Oh, there was yeah. some funny names. Edit John here. A few of those names are Herb Robert, Stinky Bob, Red Robin, Death Come Quickly, Fox Geranium, Storksbill, Cranesbill, and Robert Geranium. Okay, back to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, death Come Quickly is one. That was the one I was going to say. It's like there was one with death. <laughs> yeah. Now death I wonder quickly. what that was referencing. Uh, the only thing I've ever seen is that like it it has like a uh, like very obviously quick life cycle. I don't know. Mm. Um, and that might have something to do with it. But I don't know. Yeah, that's a, the, the no, no idea where that one came from. It's just a weird one. So before it was liminal.earth, it was liminal Seattle, yes, right? Yes, yeah. Tell me about the beginning. You know, why did y'all even have this idea? Yeah. Um, so Garrett, Kelly, and I, um, we were online friends for a very long time. We used to, like, blog back in the days of, like, when blogging just meant, like, kind of keeping an online journal that other people read. <laughs> it didn't have like a theme or, you know, you could write whatever you wanted. And, you know, if you got like 10 readers, that's cool. Cause you're hanging out and interacting and they had comments. And so, uh, Garrett and I, and, and another friend of ours named Tim, uh, a couple of other people, but the three of us in particular have been in touch this whole time. Uh, and, uh, we were blogging about this kind of stuff, you know, paranormal stuff, but also politics and, you know, independent radio and music and whatever caught our fancy. Um, and one day I can't remember if it was me or Garrett who said, um, to the other, you know, I see you live in Seattle. We should totally get together, you know, have some coffee or something like that and talk in person. And it turned out we lived across the street from each other (laughs) and had been living across the street from each other for quite a while and didn't even know it. Um, but we had only talked online and, uh, we still mostly talk online you know, to this day, but, um, we kind of kept the friendship going and, you know, our friend Tim as well. And, uh, the more we did online, the stranger things began to, you know, happen. Um, and so we started to keep this database of like collecting all of our dreams or visions and, you know, strange experiences we had. Uh, and we just used Airtable, that site Airtable for it. It's an online database site. And one day, simultaneously, Garrett and I both had the idea, we should take these and put these on a map of Seattle just to see if there's anything that matches up. 
And then we can share that map sort of with our friends to see if any of them have had anything happen in that area. <laughs> so we we did that. And uh, like we both had actually started the project at the same time. And we were like, look, look, look this cool thing I did. And it just sort of happened. We were also really interested in the idea of like the maps from the intro to The Hobbit, you know, the, at the beginning of the book, like the beginning mm -hmm. of the book the beginning of the fantasy book maps mm -hmm. are so cool. Like we're a big fan of the genre <laughs> and we thought, wouldn't it be fun to have something like where in Seattle is Mordor, you know, where in Seattle is, <laughs> you know, the Shire, that kind of thing. All of this kind of came together and we ended up with liminal Seattle and we were just like, Oh, well, let's just see if some of our friends like it. And the next thing we knew it, it just took off. And, you know, we had the Seattle times do the interview and, King five evening magazine <laughs> woo. Um, local news channel uh, did the, did an interview with us and uh, yeah, it just kind of kept going and going and going from there. And then about a year in, we were like, okay, let's open it up to the whole world. And we did. And the rest is as they say, <laughs> did you just think, you know, because it blew up so quick in Seattle, like Let's just open up to the whole world and see what happens. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, we started getting act a little more active, like on Twitter and in a couple of other places. Uh, the site that formerly known as Twitter, I don't know <laughs> what to call it anymore. Um, yeah, and it was just such a like cool thing to so many people that we thought, well, let's make it available to more people. We're we want to make everything that we do as accessible as possible, and mm -hmm. so we kind of said, like, well, we'll take it. Like, we'll take it. We we'll send us stuff. We'll take it. We'll put it on our map. Uh, and so we did that. And in some ways it got too big, too fast, um, mm. because the technology behind the map hasn't caught up to its size. Like it was not scalable, um, as they say. <laughs> uh, so everything that gets submitted to us is still entered manually. Mm. Um, and it's kind of a, a big lift. So updates are a little sporadic at times, but generally speaking, you know, we still, we'll, we'll put everything up that we get. So, well, I love the map. Um, we use it all the time. Uh, I Just this last episode, by now it'll be a couple episodes ago, I just fell down this rabbit hole of green stuff, and it was all because of a AP Strange post about this like barking green cloud thing that <laughs> rolled through a party. And I found that from just pressing the random story function. Yeah. A lot of times me and Amelia or when I'm with somebody, I will end an episode by going on Liminal Earth and random story to see if it sunk up with yes with anything um that we talked about that day and i love doing that that's awesome thank you and where did your interest in i guess strange tales come from i mean obviously it's probably pretty broad but is there any like little thing that happened in childhood or something that made you just super into weird stuff nothing specific i grew up in uh saint augustine florida which um you know, a lot of people have heard of because they have the haunted lighthouse. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's the oldest, this is the oldest permanently occupied European settlement <laughs> in, in the, the, you know, what are now the United States. And, um, it's got all of the, everything that goes along with that. Like, it's kind of cool. Cause it's got like a European town feel, mm. but there were a lot of massacres and, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the indigenous populations were not, I don't want to get too far into that, but you know, it's got history, but because of that, it's like a weird place. You know, it's not like the lighthouse is haunted, but like, there are some places that I could take people there that are like way weirder than, than the lighthouse. 
growing up in a weird place can kind of point you in a weird direction. Yeah. And uh, and then I had, um, yeah, I talked about this with Jim Perry on Euphemet, uh, this, this sort of mentor who, who started as a babysitter, uh, but I, I remained friends with her throughout my life until she passed, unfortunately, um, a few years ago. And she was like a, um, she was a, a psychic. She was a, a witch. She lived in like the pine scrubs near the swamp. Um, and her name was Willie Watkins. And my parents were very liberal and open-minded and they didn't, you know, there's not, not an issue that I was into this kind of thing, but, um, you know, I was an anxious child. I'm still, you know, kind of an anxious guy in general. And so I think the concern was that I would get scared. And so I wasn't really encouraged to like bring books on UFOs and stuff home. Um, I was allowed to, like, it wasn't anything I would get in trouble for, but, uh, but Willie, when I showed an interest in that would like send me home with like all the cool books, like all the old, like, uh, you know, mysteries of the unexplained and all the old, like Hans Holzer stuff. And, um, so I, I got exposed to all of that, uh, when I was probably, I don't know, 11 or 12 or something like that. And from there, it just kind of, you know, I was a weirdo and I was the goth kid and, um, you know, I wanted to experiment with stuff and, and I did and just kind of kept going from there. So. I think a lot of my animus perspective on things comes from an appreciation of microbes. Um, yeast, you know, as one of the first domesticated non-human entities. Um, and the fermentation process like, that helps establish that. Um, one of my favorite things to think about as far as it comes to, when it comes to that, is uh, in some Eastern traditions, and I don't want to speak on behalf of the people who practice these traditions, but like if you take Tai Chi, or if you study like Taoist philosophy, um, mm -hmm. there is an energy center in the body. Um, it's called like the Dantan or the Dantian um, or the Hara, depending on what tradition you're in. And it's like where the, the chi concentrates. Um, it's the exact same spot as where your gut biome is. Exact same spot. And to me, that's like, Okay, it's correlation and not causation, but it's a pretty strong correlation. It's a strong enough correlation to me to think maybe there's something to that. Like, make friends with microorganisms, try and do fermentation, eat fermented foods, and it's highly recommended. <laughs> <laughs> So the other thing we do sometimes with liminal earth is I should go ahead and start with the caveat that we know there are a lot of questionable and ethical issues with AI, uh, particularly with making sure creators get their work acknowledged and, and paid for and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but we use it in a creative way often, um, mm -hmm. you know, during our WUFO sessions, we'll sometimes try to use AI to act as like the voice of an aerial entity we're communicating with. And, and we have a lot of fun doing that. And then we tried, you were there for the, the Philip experiment. Mm -hmm. We tried to do the AI Philip experiment. Um, so I actually asked chat GPT four. Um, I asked it 
uh, to play the role of uh, a liminal daemon, um, a a spirit of the Cascade Timberlands, uh, and and it actually gave a pretty lucid, you know, kind of the what I would kind of expect to hear if I was communicating. It said its name was um, Lirinway, L Y R I N W E Y. Uh, it says, I manifest as an ancient being wrapped in emerald moss and vibrant ferns, bark-like skin with patterns resembling the oldest rings of the dug furs. And then it has like instructions for summoning it and stuff, which I, I put on. So if you go to weirdwords.org, that's our um, sort of blogging platform for the Fediverse. Uh, and I put it on there so you can read this whole thing. And then I asked it to tell us its folklore regarding Herb Robert. And it said, um, it's kind of like, it does this flowery kind of, you know, it's, it's AI. Yep. So. It says, uh, in the shadow of the fur and pine, where sunlight dances through the canopy and casts a dappled ballet upon the forest floor, the delicate petals of Herb Robert emerge like tiny sparks of living flame. Its five-petal blossoms, a fiery spectacle amid the verdant undergrowth, have been a beacon of beauty, hope, and healing for countless generations. It is said that a nymph of the forest recognized the resilience of this herb, how it flourished in the face of adversity, clinging to life in the harshest of conditions. In awe of its steadfast vitality, the forest daemons bestowed upon Herb Robert the ability to heal and cleanse, to bring balance where there was discord. Herb Robert thus became a guardian of the forest's health, its crimson blooms a promise of resilience and renewal. The entities of the woodland came to understand its powers. Birds with ruffled feathers and forest dwellers with weary hearts seek out its vibrant blossoms, resting among its leaves, drawing strength and rejuvenation from its presence. It has the power to cleanse one's energy, to invigorate one's spirit, and if the ancient tales hold true, to awaken one's innate connection with the natural world. I had actually seen this, you know, it, it's getting its information from somewhere. But it says its very name, Geranium Robertianum, is derived from a tale of transformation and divine intervention. And this is, again, the AI speaking. I have not gone back to confirm this. <laughs> um, the name Robert is believed to honor a monk named Robert of Molesme. Mm -hmm. As the tale goes, he encountered a deadly fever plaguing his community. Seeking aid, he prayed fervently in the forest where he was guided to Herb Robert. When he used the herb to treat the ailing people, they recovered, attributing their health to this humble plant, hence the name Herb Robert. There is another tale that attributes Herb Robert's pungent scent to the deeds of a mischievous wood sprite. There's Puck. The sprite, <laughs> eager to deter curious humans from discovering its home amid the Herb Robert, imbued the plant with a strong odor. However, this trick backfired as the unique aroma drew humans closer, intrigued by the plant's distinctive smell. Then it says, Herb Robert has also been called Death Comes Quickly, a somewhat ominous name that does not refer to any, any deadly properties, but rather its transformative life cycle. Okay, that's mm. where I heard that. It earned this name to its, its ephemeral nature, rapidly completing its life cycle and producing seeds that spread far and wide. And then it kind of kept going. Uh, it's it's pretty long. I won't read the whole thing, but you can, you can read the whole thing about... Um, Many old tales suggest that creating a small nook in your garden or home filled with the crimson blossoms and green leaves of Herb Robert can act as an invitation to the good folk. Oh, yeah. Uh, so there you go. Always inviting. 
The Good Folk. Always, yes. Also, supposedly that's where the Goodfellow part of Robin Goodfellow came from is because uh, they didn't want to upset the folks. So that's kind of why they call them the Goodfellow, like yeah. giving them a little compliment of like, please don't play tricks on me. <laughs> you know, he's a good fellow. Right. Like, yeah. Hey, that guy, he's a good fellow. <laughs> that's so fascinating. And I think, you know, like you said, there's things issues with AI, but when you're using it as a tool and not as a replacement money-saving profit-boosting mechanism, you right. know, that's different, um, at least in my opinion. Oh, yeah, I think I, I think so, too. Um, the other thing I was talking about, too, though, is that um, not the AI, but the other thing that I was going to mention is there's actually been studies done that show it has very... Um, vigorous antifungal and antimicrobial properties herb robert the plant itself whoa um it's also resistant to most herbicides especially glyphosate which is that roundup stuff that monsanto mm. puts out that's so awful monsters um it it resists it which is another one of the reasons why it survives whoa. so well in the forest where they spray that crap that's like um, a superpower yeah totally yeah, that is that is Robin Goodfellow. That is the puka. That's totally. I'm everywhere. You can't stop me. Yeah, yeah, and it grows abundantly on uh, railway tracks. Is one of the places that you can find it the most. Interesting. Yeah, I love railways. I love I love when trains are by water. Yeah, that's just a random thing, but it's very <laughs> true. <laughs> All right, well, one last thing before we go, something I like to do a lot of time is take from uh, the end of Passport to Magonia, there's a little appendix with a century of sightings, and I like to just type in random words and then see which ones pop up. And I found a weird little flap in August to September in 67 of real smelly stuff. So this is in honor of Stinky Bob. Stinky Bob. First one, August 29th, 1967. Cusack, France. Two children saw a sphere, two meters in diameter, and four little devils. Hmm. One of them was bending over, apparently busy with something on the ground, and another held a mirror-like object. They hovered and flew around the sphere, then dived into it as it rose with a soft whistling sound. A smell of sulfur began to spread, and the object flew away. Hmm. That's fun. A lot of times you will hear about the stinky smell. That's true. With yeah. all sorts of stuff. So maybe it's you, Bob. Maybe it's stinky Bob. It doesn't really smell like sulfur to me, though. Not even close. No, yeah. it smells really good, actually. September 08th, 1967. Caracas, Venezuela. A. Aguilar, 23, saw a creature outside her bedroom window and screamed. Her parents ran into the room in time to see it soaring over rooftops, surrounded by a bluish-yellow glow. It moved as if suspended from a balloon. A strong smell of melted iron was detected by all. Melted? I don't think I've ever smelled melted iron. Melted iron. Very How specific, does, very right? Specific, and it's in quotes, yeah. you know. Huh. Melted iron. And that sounds very uh, Spring Hill Jackish. Yeah. Yeah. And the um, bluish yellow glow 
surrounded by that is interesting because Spring Hill Jack used to like blow blue flame. Right. Yeah. And like, I think it was like a gas of some type because people would like pass out after right. a lot of times. Yeah. So very strange. Blue yeah. bouncing around. And also I love when there's sightings out windows. That's like a really common thing that always interests me hmm. because there's like this gap between, you know, oh, yeah, the window. True. It's mm-hmm. like you can look through, but you're not really sure what you're seeing on the other side. Yeah. It's almost like a hagstone for a house. <laughs> <laughs> the window is yeah. a hagstone of the house. <laughs> yes. Quote, <laughs> John like McEdward. <laughs> and the iron thing too, though, there's an association with like the good folk and iron. Thank you. They, they hate yep. it. You know, they don't like yeah. you can't can't deal with irons. So. Very true. Huh. And then the other one, four little devils. Yeah, yeah. Little pukas. Because sometimes also I'll say pukas were they would roam in packs. Sometimes oh. they would talk about them as like multiple. You know. Last one, September eleventh, nineteen sixty seven, Via Constitucion, Argentina. During a raging storm. An entire family watched a large glowing object in a field 300 meters away, giving off brilliant beams of light for four hours, after which it took off in seconds. Soot-like material with an unpleasant smell and tracks on flattened grass were noted. Hmm. I love also when there's things during big storms. Yes. That's another one. So I was really pumped because all these hit the things that fascinate me like some of the weird things that are in stories the looking through the window mm-hmm. the the glowing person bouncing around yeah <laughs> uh and lots of stinky stuff lots of smelly stuff huh. that's one of amelia's favorite things she loves cryptids and a lot of times cryptids also have some sort of stinky yeah uh, association okay well that's all i got do you have any other final thoughts of herb robert i mean What I love about just this idea for this show is just taking something and then just going down whatever rabbit holes. If I wouldn't have found just one like blog that suggested that maybe the name came from Robin Goodfellow (laughs) and I got sent down just a rabbit hole for a whole week of pukas and just all the strange folklore that surrounded it. So thank you, Herb Robert. Thank you, Stinky Bob. Yeah, I mean, I just think like it's it, it's good. Like, I always want to encourage people to go out and and learn about plants because, not just because it's cool to learn about plants, which it is, but also because it it gets you used to, um, like putting on like a, you know, a pair of sunglasses that like let you see the world in a different way. You know, it's like they live, but like a good in a good way. But it's similar, like, it, but going out and learning about plants, like that teaches you to like look at the world through different lenses. And it's when you go on like a hike or something like that. Um, if you don't know any of the plants, you know, you can have a pleasant time. But when you do, it's like, boom, 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 boom. You're seeing all of these things that you've never seen before. Um, and and that's a good way to, like, learn how to appreciate you know the unseen world and start kind of getting into it and delving into it. And I think the other thing with Herb Robert that um, is really sticks out to me is how it doesn't deserve, like, the visceral hatred that it gets. Um and I've said it before, I don't like the concept of invasive species. I do think that there are wrong plants or animals in the wrong place. But the whole idea of invasive species, if you look back into it, was started by pesticide and herbicide companies. Mm. Um, they were looking for ways to use 
more chemicals and to get people to buy. You have to have your perfect lawn. You don't want something to invade it. You have to have your perfect forest. You don't want something to invade it. Plants are and an animal like they're not an invasion invading force. They're not some sort of evil thing that deserves hatred and, you know, kill it with fire phrases and all that stuff. And I think that getting beyond this concept of, of invasive species and instead looking at each plant in the place where it is, is a way to be sort of kinder to the life that surrounds us. So, you know, yes, if Herb Robert is choking out your garden and it's taking all the resources, then yeah, pull it. I mean, you know, if you've got Japanese knotweed that's clogging a riverbed or something, then sure, you know, remove it. But claiming that this plant, this particular species is somehow invading, um, I don't think that's a really helpful way to look at the world. And so I would just say, you know, go out there and, and find some herb, Robert, and and appreciate it for what it is, you know. I love that. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, of course. Please come back. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Anomalous Waves. Thank you to Jeremy Puma for joining us. Make sure and check out Liminal Earth at liminal.earth to get the map or follow them on social media at the same name, liminal.earth. As always, check the show notes for links to all this stuff. If you want to support the show, you can join the Strange Pals Club at patreon.com slash anomalouswaves. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at Anomalous Waves. As always, you can find all them links and more at anomalouswaves.com. But the best way to support the show is by telling someone or something about it. Tell a stool that may in fact be a good fellow. Tell a pile of peeled oranges. Tell a smell. Or just tell anyone who likes anything weird. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye.